I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. I'm going to focus today on the call that Jesus puts upon his disciples to come and follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Though I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about that. I want to put a lot of preliminary things down for the basis of that call. But let's begin by reading this passage. We're going to back up and read some of the things that we looked at last week and uh, pick up a few points that that I didn't give to you uh, in the previous sermon. Mark 1, 9 through 20. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. May God bless the reading and hearing of His Word and write its truth upon our hearts today. From time to time in the past, I've, I've watched that show, I think maybe on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, How It's Made. And it uh, is a show that tells you about all kinds of different things and how they're made. And you go into these factories and they'll show you how baseball bats are mass-produced or how, uh, how tin cans for putting food in are, are, are created. Uh, it's very interesting to see because you go through the whole process and you see kind of behind the curtain of what's going on and, and how it all actually happens. And it's pretty interesting. Of course, after you've seen about three or four of them, it's, it's all the same kind of factory uh, things and you, know, you kind of get tired of all that. But I was thinking about that and how things work, how things are made, how things are created. I was thinking about the kids going back to school this week and what they'll be learning. They'll be learning about the nature of things. I think about science class. I was very impressed uh, when we went to sign up uh, Winston for classes. And you know, when we, when we were in Clarksdale, he had one choice for science as a senior. But this year, he's got all kinds of choices that he had before him of which type of science that he wanted to study to learn the nature of things and, and how, how it all works. Well, today I want us to do a little bit of that as we look at this call that Jesus gives to his disciples. What is the nature of this call? And I want us to back up kind of away from that call and, and lay some of the groundwork and look into the factory of what Jesus is doing in our lives and to see how that call comes about and how it uh, becomes a part of our lives. And I want to do that in three sections. I want to talk about the nature of the Trinity I want to talk about the nature of the gospel, and then I want to talk about the nature of the call. Let's look at the Trinity to begin with. Now, understanding the Trinity is a difficult task. 
The doctrine is mysterious and it's just plain outright challenging to our minds. It's very difficult to understand. We can uh, look at these catechism questions that I've reproduced there on the front of the bulletin, and that's basically the teaching on the Trinity in very simple words. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So the first thing that we need to understand about the Trinity and remember is that there is only one God. The Bible makes that very, very clear. But secondly, the Bible also very clear, clearly teaches that the, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And each of these three persons of the Trinity are distinct from one another. How can it be? Now, admittedly, it's not easy to understand, but it is what God has revealed to us in his word, and we must believe God. Now, when you look at all the errors from the past, all the heresies that that have arisen in the church, uh, most of them, actually practically all of them, often uh, get their beginnings in a faulty view of the Trinity. And it usually goes in one of two ways. First... Some people would emphasize the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness of God. For example, some people might say the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three different modes that God has expressed himself in uh, at different times. For example, like water. Sometimes water is a liquid, sometimes it's gas, sometimes it's a solid. Now, the problem with this view is it fails to recognize that all three persons of the Godhead distinctly exist from all eternity. So, like we noted last week, at creation, the Father, uh, the Son, and the Spirit were all present at creation. All three were a part of that. John 1 tells us that the Word, God's Word that created all things, is actually Jesus, the agent of creation. So that view is faulty. But the second way, uh, second way is to emphasize God's threeness at the expense of his oneness. Now, this uh, error is usually expressed by making a rank within the Trinity. Um, they would say that the Father is the one that's truly and fully God. But this, this view fails to recognize that the Son and the Spirit are fully God, even as the Father is. As the Catechism says, they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. If this heresy were true, then we could never be saved because it was necessary that Jesus Christ be God to save us. It was God that hung on the cross and and died for our sins. Now, it's very mysterious. We can never know exactly how the Trinity works. But the important thing is that we believe in the Trinity. Uh, It's what God has revealed about himself in his word. Thomas Boston was a great Puritan from Scotland. He said this, This mystery of the Trinity is so interwoven with the whole of religion that there can neither be any true faith, right worship, or obedience without it. So if you want to worship God aright, know God fully, if you want to follow God, you have to believe in the Trinity. Now, why am I giving you this, uh, this doctrinal position today? 
Now, last week, as I said, I mentioned the two places in Scripture where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all are are mentioned as being in the same place at once. First, we have creation, as I just noted, where God creates by the Word while the Spirit is hovering over the formless and void earth. And then second, we noted last week that here at the baptism of Jesus, all three are present once again. The the Son is being baptized. The voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends like a dove. The baptism marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry of redemption. He's about to go off and start preaching and healing and doing all the wonderful things that He did. Now, what's being made clear by Mark and, and in the Bible is that both creation and redemption are projects of the triune God. That's what I want you to see today in this first point. Both creation and redemption are projects of the triune God. All three of the persons of the Trinity are involved in creation, and all three are involved in redemption. Now let's think about the why of this for a moment. Why did God create, and why did He redeem? Why did He make anything at all in the first place? And why did He not destroy it all immediately after mankind ruined creation with sin? Why didn't He just do a do-over? You know, when we were kids, we played baseball out in the backyard at my house, and uh, third base was a a little pecan tree, uh, but it, it was, you know, 10, 12 feet high. So if you hit a ball in the air over the pecan tree, there was always a controversy about whether it was fair or foul. The fence was shorter on that side uh, of the yard, and so it was easy to hit a home run. So it was very important and led to many an argument. Well, to to resolve the arguments, many times we just had to do a do-over. You just had to start all over again and and redo the the at-bat. Why didn't God just do a do-over? Mankind messed it all up. He's God. He created it all with just His Word. He could have just as easily rubbed it all out and started afresh. But He didn't do that. Why? Let's think about this quote that I've got in the front of the bulletin by Cornelius Plantinga. It says this, The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for the others. So within the Trinity, you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorifying one another. You see that uh, played out in John 17 when when Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer. He says, Father, uh, glorify me with your glory, and I want to glorify you. And uh, all three persons glorify, they adore one another. Now, a lot of people say God got lonely, and so he created mankind to have somebody to talk to. That's not the case at all because God had perfect love within the three persons of the Trinity for all eternity. As Tim Keller said, if this world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really all about. Why would a triune God create the world? If he were a unipersonal God, you might say, well, he created the world so he can have beings who give him worshipful love and that would give him joy. But the triune God already had that. And he received love within himself in a far purer, more powerful form than we human beings can ever give him. 
So why would He create us? There's only one answer. He must have created us not to get joy, but to give it. See, creation is God's love spilling out into the universe, creating a universe. God had so much love within Himself, He wanted to share that love with His creation. So He he made creation. If you look at Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, after they sinned, there's this interesting verse, Genesis 3.8, where it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, the implication here is that they had heard this sound before. This wasn't the first time God went walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They, they heard, oh, well, there's God. God is here. And because they had sinned, they ran from His presence. But the implication is that in the past when they heard God, they ran to be in His presence. It's kind of like a, a young child. Maybe, uh, maybe you experienced this when your father came home from work when you were little. Uh, you ran to the door to greet him because you were excited to see him. I kind of think of Adam and Eve as that way. When God showed up in the garden, they ran to be in His presence. And they had that opportunity just to, to be there with Him and fellowship with Him and to be known by Him. And that gave them joy and God joy as well. Now, because of their sin here in verse 8, they hide from God's presence. And that is the sorry history of the world from that point to, to this day. Mankind running from God's presence. God desiring to love and have a relationship with His creation. But mankind rejecting that relationship and actually fleeing from God, hiding from His presence. So God created to give us joy and love and to enter into that relationship with Him, to, to experience fellowship with Him, and it's broken. Redemption is God doing a do-over. He's saying, look, I'm not going to let these people just wander off from me. He's gone and He's pursued us. He's hunting us down so He can, he can recapture us, so we can have that relationship with Him. And that's, that's why... That's the nature of the Trinity. It longs for that love to be shared. And, and God longs to love you and have a relationship with you. So that's the nature of the Trinity. Let's look at the Gospel. The first thing that Jesus says that Mark records for us after He comes to earth, we see why He came to earth. Because God loves His people. He loves His creation. And He wants to redeem it. Now Mark tells us what Jesus initially preached. After John was rested, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's look at the nature of the gospel. And here's what I want to say to you. The gospel is news. It's not instruction, nor is it advice. It's good news. That's what the word means. Now what is news? News, when you turn it on the television or you read the newspaper, you find out about what's happened. It's a report of things that have happened. Sometimes it might be a report of what is going to happen. There might be an announcement that something is coming up. But usually it's a report of something that has happened. And that's what the gospel is. It's not just good advice. Jesus is not coming to earth to tell you what to do. To tell you, hey, if you, I'm going to give you some advice for how you can have this relationship with me. 
He's got all power and authority, and we're going to see that in Mark, because Mark goes out of his way to show us the power and authority of Christ. He's got power and authority to proclaim to you and say, you need to do this, that, and the other. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is that someone with the power and authority has come and not told you what to do, but has actually come and done it for you in your place. And now he offers it to you for free. That, my friends, is good news. It's already been accomplished. It's done. That's good news. It's not good advice or instruction that Jesus comes to give you. It's the gospel. He's, he's got the power and authority, and He's come and done it in our place. He has done what needs to be done for you to be able to enjoy the relationship with God that you were created to enjoy. And that's why when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. This linen-woven curtain, five, six inches thick, was split from top to bottom, 18 feet high. And the only person who was allowed to go into the very center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, was the priest one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And they actually had to tie a rope to his his leg in case he got struck down in God's presence if he came in in an unworthy manner. Because no one was allowed to go in there. But after Jesus died, that curtain was torn. And the way right into the very presence of God was opened up. If you looked on that curtain, what was woven there were... were, uh, angelic beings called cherubim. And the other place in Scripture, one of the other places in Scripture where we see that is at the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, a cherubim was placed at the garden to guard it so that Adam and Eve couldn't go back in there. And so those cherubim guarded the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, and no one was allowed to go in there. When Jesus died, it was torn open, symbolizing for us and telling us that the way is open once again, to have that relationship with God that you were created to have. How should we respond to this news? Repent and believe. See, sin is us hiding from the presence of God. We're running from the presence of God. We're running from His authority. We're running from His rule. But repentance is us running into the presence of God, saying, Lord, we've gone in the wrong direction. We're turning around. We're running to You. We want to know You. We trust You. That's repentance and belief. So that's the nature of the gospel. So we've got the nature of the Trinity, that it's overflowing with love, longing for that relationship. The nature of the gospel is the news that that Christ has made that relationship possible for you. Now God gives us this call. Jesus calls his disciples. He sees Simon and Andrew, James and John. He says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So there's two parts here. First, follow me. You'll notice, first of all, that Mark notes the two sets of disciples. First, Simon and Andrew, Peter and Andrew. And he notes the fact that they left their nets and followed him. And then when you see in the next couple of verses, uh, James and John the father, uh, leave not just their nets, but their, he notes that they leave their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They were both doing the same thing, fishing. But Mark notes that one leaves their career and the other leaves the family. Now in those days, your identity was closely tied with your family and your career. Uh, You were a family of fishermen. And that's who you were. And you did what your father did. And your family was very important in, in saying who you are. 
Modern people, not so much like they were. We, we, we have no problem leaving our families and moving away. And that's not a big deal to us. But they didn't do that back then. So it's a big deal that they leave their family and that they leave their career. We can more identify with that. Uh, Jesus says, follow me and uh, quit your job. And I'm going to just, I'll tell you what to do later. I mean, we can kind of grasp the gravity of that. But both of these cases, the disciples left their careers, their families. And it tells us this about the call Christ puts on us. Jesus wants priority over everything in our lives, our family, our career. And it's important that we understand that that's not a very painful thing to do because he wants to have a deep love relationship with us, back to the Trinity, and why he's asking us this in the first place. We often use Jesus as a means to an end. Uh, We try to be good people, we try to live right, and we want God to bless us, bless our efforts. Lord, I'll follow you uh, as long as my job is, is going well. I'll follow you as long as my relationships are going well. But see, that's a very slippery slope to be on because you're using Jesus to get something else. And that something else is actually the God that you're pursuing. Jesus is not the means to an end. He is the end. And that's what he's saying to the disciples. Follow me. And, and we know from the other gospel writers that, that Peter and Andrew and James and John had, had encountered Jesus before. They had heard him preach. They had seen him work some miracles and then this call comes. But Mark wants to stress that they dropped it all and left him. And that's the call that comes to us, to trust Jesus with your life, to say, whatever, Lord, I'm yours. And that's the call to follow him. He's not the means to an end. He is the end. That's why he created this earth. And that's why he redeems mankind, so that we can know him and be his people and have that relationship and Our lives can be centered on Him like His life is centered on the Father and the Spirit and and, and all the members of the Trinity loving one another and that love spilling out. The call is to center your life on Jesus. Now look at the second thing. I will make you become fishers of men. When you follow Jesus, then the focus becomes on Christ and then others. See? There's nothing uh, that Jesus says to them about, look, you follow me, you'll be blessed. Or you'll, you, you follow me, you'll get this or you'll get that. No, you follow me and you'll become fishers of men. Other people become important. Other, become, other people become the center uh, of your life when you follow Jesus. Now that goes against the grain of our culture today because we are a bunch of uh, self-involved navel gazers. You know, we are so worried about ourselves and... And we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves. But true humility, true godly humility, means that you don't think about yourself at all. You think about others. Humility, a lot of people think, is to think, low, think, your, think of yourself as someone who is lowly. You know, it's thinking less of yourself. But, the, but humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And that's what happens when you follow Jesus. You become fishers of men. You have heard this good news of the gospel. You've experienced it. And now you want to share it with others. You want to go out and tell other people about this free gift of salvation that you've experienced. 
So that's the nature of things. The Trinity, the Gospel, this good news of salvation, and the call upon our lives. Have you responded to that call? Have you given Jesus your life? Have you entrusted Him with your career, with your family, with everything? That can be kind of scary when you think about it. But when you think about how much He loves us and what He's done for us, how, to the, the lengths which he, which he has gone to in order to save us so that we can know Him, it's easy to put your trust in someone who would care that much for you, who would come a great distance and pay the ultimate price for you. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And we're going to think about that in a few moments uh, as we come to the Lord's table. But let's pray together and think about these things and ask the Lord to help us grasp this grace that He so freely offers to us. Let's pray.